Hello, and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm Executive Editor Sean Schmidt. This week, the law firm King & Spalding held its 13th annual Medical Device Summit, and MedTech Insight was there to bring you essential insight on some of the big issues touching industry, including enforcement in the face of COVID-19, breakthrough devices, reimbursement from Medicare, and a peek ahead as to how quickly U.S. President-elect Joe Biden will fill top roles at the Department of Health and Human Services and at the Food and Drug Administration. Luckily, three of my colleagues, senior reporters Elizabeth Orr, Sue Darcy, and Ferdos Al-Farouk, also known as Danny, are here with me today to sort all of that out. But first, perhaps the most important news that came out of the summit is that the FDA has been quietly putting together plans for a pilot program that will allow agency investigators to conduct facility inspections virtually, obviously in response to the pandemic, which is showing no signs of letting up. That nugget of news came from longtime industry expert and ex-FDA official Steve Needleman, who's lead quality systems and compliance consultant at King & Spalding. An FDA official told Needleman that the virtual inspections pilot is in its preliminary stages, and not much is known about it yet. MedTech Insight reached out to the FDA for comment a few days ago, but the agency hasn't responded as of the time of this podcast recording. In any event, this is something device makers should keep an eye on, and of course we'll bring you any new information as it comes in at MedTechInsight.com. Now let's talk to Elizabeth about her reporting from the summit, where enforcement experts said pandemic cleanup efforts could last for years to come. Elizabeth, this sounds like a huge mess coming everyone's way. What's going on? Yes, so this was a panel held November 10th with King and Spalding attorneys Mark Jensen, Brant Lieb, and Ethan Davis. All of them have extensive enforcement experience. And in fact, Davis was acting assistant attorney general over the DOJ's civil division until September 2020. And the main point they were making was that COVID-19 has been as much of a crisis at the Department of Justice as everywhere else. For one thing, the pandemic has delayed, but not stopped, ongoing investigations. Jensen anticipates that it may be years before the backlog clears and those investigations reach a resolution, in part because attorneys have faced challenges in working from home. For example, he said the grand jury process has basically come to a standstill and interviewing witnesses has become exponentially more difficult. And on top of that, the DOJ is learning how to monitor new federal programs related to the pandemic, like the small business funds distributed under the CARES Act. And as we all know, rapid changes aren't really a government specialty. Well, isn't that the truth? So are there any new issues that DOJ has been tackling this year? Yes, there are, like blocking the sale of phony COVID-19 tests and treatments. To make sure they didn't accidentally take action against genuinely innovative products, The DOJ partnered with the FDA to explore which products were real, which were fake, and which deserved deeper scrutiny. In general, the problems seen by DOJ so far fall into three broad categories. First, there's outright criminal fraud. Somebody collects money for, say, N95 masks, but doesn't actually have any masks to sell. The second is selling substandard equipment. Somebody advertising N95s really does have masks to sell, but they aren't N95s. And the third is price gouging, which is, of course, when products are sold at an enormous markup. Going forward, Davis anticipates that the DOJ will need to look at possible violations committed while companies were protected by enforcement discretion. He also foresees a move from fighting fraud to bringing cases related to violations of the False Claims Act. 
Okay, so that's pandemic-related priorities. What's going on with DOJ otherwise? We're still seeing growth in the number of criminal cases brought and the dollar amounts recovered by the government. Ongoing areas of focus for the DOJ include kickbacks, emergency use authorizations, adverse event reporting, device safety, and device medical necessity. But one thing to watch is enforcement against patient assistance programs. DOJ holds that drug companies could violate anti-kickback laws by giving money to nonprofits that help patients afford medications. And Lieb said the same basic idea could be expanded to include enforcement against device manufacturers. Similarly, device firm compliance policies should prioritize speaker programs and any other efforts that involve giving money directly to healthcare providers. The DOJ monitors these programs with a high level of scrutiny and has brought several cases against life sciences companies for kickback and racketeering violations based on what the government believed were excessive payments of speaker fees to healthcare professionals. Interesting stuff, and listeners can find out more by checking out your article, which is online now at medtechinsight.com. Thanks, Elizabeth. Let's shift gears here a bit and talk to Danny about a post-election roundtable he attended during the summit. Experts on the panel talked about what we can now expect in the coming months as the Biden administration takes the reins. Danny, tell us what happened. Yeah, it was a fascinating talk with some notable experts on the panel, including former Republican Maryland Governor Robert Ehrlich, former Democratic Florida Congressman Kendrick Meek, and former Trump Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. They all gave their political and legal forecasts on what to expect in the coming months, but I found the predictions of Sheldon Bradshaw and Chris Kenney two King and Spaulding attorneys especially insightful. Bradshaw touched on what the Biden administration's priorities will be as soon as the president-elect takes office, while Kenny talked about the importance of the Georgia Senate runoff elections on the fate of the Affordable Care Act. Bradshaw noted that in the past, the Department of Health and Human Services and the FDA have not played a big role post-elections, but because of the coronavirus pandemic, they have become priorities. While it took former President Obama and current President Trump months to fill the FDA commissioner's position, for example, we can expect that Biden will immediately have candidates ready for Senate confirmation as soon as he gets into office, so he's playing with a full deck as he addresses the crisis. On the other hand, Bradshaw says it's also entirely possible that Trump, in his time as lame duck from now through Inauguration Day, could fire HHS and FDA leaders that he believes made him look bad during the pandemic. In particular, there's concern FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn's job may be on the line, considering he's butted heads with the HHS Secretary Alex Azar on a number of issues. Another thing worth mentioning is we reported in the past that there may be a slew of FDA regulations and guidances the Trump administration may try pushing out before the new administration comes in, but Bradshaw says that may be tough to do given that the number of top FDA officials who have left the agency recently. Let's move on to Georgia's two upcoming Senate elections. How might the outcome of those races affect the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, was recently challenged in front of the Supreme Court? It looks like the Republicans have held on to 50 seats in the Senate and Democrats right now have 48 seats. However, because no candidate has hit the adequate threshold in the Georgia Senate elections, there will be a runoff election on January 5th that will determine who fills those two Senate posts. Republicans are still trying to undo the ACA both through legislative means and through legal battles in the U.S. Supreme Court, as you mentioned. But according to attorney Chris Kenney, if Democrats win those two seats, that means Democrats may be able to provide legislative fixes to any damage Republicans may do because Vice President-elect Kamala Harris will be the tiebreaker in cases where the Senate votes strictly down party lines. 
Okay, it'll be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Thanks for that report, Danny, which, of course, listeners can read at medtechinsight.com. Now let's talk to Sue. You covered some recent proposed changes by Medicare as part of its Medicare Coverage of Innovative Technology, or MSIT, draft rule that was discussed at the King and Spalding Summit. What were some of the key takeaways? Well, to date, we've only been hearing about the medtech industry's enthusiastic response to the MSIT proposed rule, which would allow the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, to automatically apply Medicare reimbursement for four years to devices that have been approved through the FDA's Breakthrough Devices Program. This is a sea change for the Medicare agency, which usually carefully scrutinizes each MedTech product that applies for coverage and has been known to turn down a product sponsor's request for coverage if the agency finds that a device doesn't seem to fit the needs of the Medicare population. The four-year coverage period would hopefully give a sponsor an opportunity to collect the evidence CMS needs for a permanent Medicare coverage of a device. But King and Spalding attorneys said at the summit, not everyone wants to see the MSIT rule be finalized. The MSIT draft reads like a very sound proposal. So who's objecting to this Medicare coverage program and why? One party objecting is AHIP, or America's Health Insurance Plans, a trade group of commercial insurers, attorney Priha Naranha Punto said. She noted that AHIP has signaled to CMS in their comments on MSIT that some of the devices the program would cover may not, quote, be clinically appropriate if they haven't gone through a clinical trial before being approved by FDA. AHIP commented that some of the medtech products that go through FDA's Breakthrough Devices program could be cleared under the 510K process, which is usually not as stringent as requirements for approval under FDA's PMA program, and some of the AHIP members are concerned about that. At a recent meeting of Medicare advisors known as the MedPAC, some of the advisors said they believe that the only devices in the breakthrough category worthy of CMS coverage are those that have gone through the PMA approval process, which usually requires a clinical trial, attorney David Barber said. So did CMS make a clinical trial part of its requirements for devices to win MSIT program coverage? Actually, no. But alongside its MSIT proposed regulation, CMS is also attempting to codify its definition of, quote, reasonable and necessary for all Medicare products, including devices. A sticking point for the medtech industry is that for CMS, that definition requires that a device would have to be, quote, medically necessary for Medicare beneficiaries, those 65 and over, to win a positive coverage determination, and probably the quickest way for a product sponsor to demonstrate that quality would be through a clinical trial, both Farber and Pinto pointed out. And we know that the medtech industry is thinking about the medically necessary requirements also, because in its recent comments on the proposed MSIT rule, the Medical Device Manufacturers Association, MDMA, asked CMS to verify its intent that it was establishing no obligation and no mandate that an FDA breakthrough device would have to go through a clinical trial in order to win Medicare coverage. 
Okay, and thanks, Sue. I know you'll continue to follow that evolving CMS coverage role. And listeners, you can check out all of our stories mentioned on this podcast and much more online now at medtechinsight.com. And for all the latest medtech news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>